Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have Edgar Villanueva back today for Spirit in Action, and we'll be talking about the new edition of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Edgar is a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, and he has some 20 years of experience working in philanthropy, including working with the foundation where he was tasked with giving away $25 million a year. His insights into the pros and cons of those claiming to help the less fortunate are world-changing, as well as his grasp of the way that philanthropy is often a part of the problem and how to fix this. In particular, in the work of Liberated Capital, he shows us how to create and use a tool to help money be good medicine. Edgar Villanueva joins us via Zoom from New York. Edgar, I'm really excited to have you back today for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's an honor. To start things off, I suppose it's important for people who didn't hear my interview with you three years ago to specify what we mean by decolonizing wealth, because that's going to be foreign. They'll know what colonizing is and colonists, and they'll be opposed to that. But decolonizing wealth in particular is a new concept for most. So give us the outline. Sure. Colonization is this process that was about conquering, taking resources, and sort of forcing the existing indigenous people in a place to conform to a new way of life, a forced assimilation. And we often think about this as a process long ago in history, but it's actually a process that is still happening very much today. And there are dynamics of colonization that are about separating, dividing, controlling, exploiting, hoarding resources that are really baked into the DNA of our economic system. Colonization was all about money. And so when we think about decolonizing money or wealth, it's about acknowledging how wealth was accumulated and all of the trauma that has been put on all of us as a result of that and thinking about how we can repair that or heal that. And there's a role for money in that process because money was sort of the impetus or the motivation behind colonization. What do we do with all this wealth that we now have that we've acquired and through all of these colonial processes to actually repair what's happened? Those of us who have been working on self-educating about racism and all the other forms that that takes, this division between those who have power and those don't, have learned quite a few things in this past year, particularly a year and a half ago when things blew up with George Floyd. I think a lot of people got on a fast track towards taking in some of this knowledge. So I think it's been a very exciting three years since you wrote the last edition of the book. Just before things blew up with George Floyd, my regional Quaker group, which is called Northern Yearly Meeting, that group had been for several years considering what to do about racism, our bias, white supremacy, etc. And so we had made a decision as a group to be an actively anti-racist organization. And that was just before George Floyd's the big explosion about that. What is the relationship or the difference or the similarity between being actively anti-racist and decolonizing from your point of view? 
I think it's a, a very similar process in many ways. And I really like the word you used, Mark, when you said you're actively working towards being anti-racist because these are all actions. They're not just theories. They're not just sort of constructs, but racism and colonization are actually like systems that are at play. In order to like change those, we have to actively do something. I think a lot of folks, especially since the murder of George Floyd, have been reading and learning and and grappling and kind of meditating on this moment. But a lot of folks have been afraid to take action, but it's absolutely what we all must do in order to sort of dismantle these systems. Colonization and decolonization are a little bit unique, perhaps, or distinguished specifically because colonization is, I think, deeply connected to a global movement that is about empire building and wealth building in a lot of ways. And, you know, specifically for indigenous people, we often think through the frame of colonization because of being so deeply impacted by the points of colonization where land was taken away and and empires were built on the land that we all live on. Whereas racism is, you know, maybe a little bit more broader. And I think within racism, there is a element of anti-Blackness that is, is pervasive in racism and, and bias that shows up. But, you know, for the purposes for most of us, they're pretty interchangeable. They're really about becoming very aware of how white supremacy has been propagating itself and how it shows up in policies and practices and systems and organizations and being willing to name that and to call it out and to make a commitment to actually heal from that. A lot of folks, when they think about decolonization, it can be political where it actually means to really return land or to return sovereignty to indigenous people, specifically that from where it was taken. So it's very action oriented in that way. But in general, we're all trying to just work toward healing from all of these oppressive kind of behaviors and mindsets that have been in place for a long, long time. And your perspective is especially rich because you're part of the Lumbee people, the Lumbee Nation. North Carolina's home stomping grounds for you. The Lumbee people are a different nation in that because they were maybe the first people hit by the wave of white people coming in from Europe. You know, so it's 500 years ago as opposed to the 200 years ago that it was for some tribes further to the West. So as far as I know, the Lumbee do not have their own language. You've had to piece together some portions of your identity, which, I mean, so much of your culture was colonized. So I think people need to understand a little bit more again about who the Lumbees are, who you are within that group. Uh, Yeah, Lumbee tribe is situated in southeastern North Carolina. We have 60,000 members of our community. And you're right, the first point of contact on this land was in coastal North Carolina. Uh, At that time, there were a number of tribes situated along coastal North Carolina Essentially, what happened through genocide, forced removal, the Trail of Tears, which you may recall learning about in school, which was a a massive forced removal of Native Americans from North Carolina with a, a march from North Carolina to Oklahoma, which is where you have the Western Band of Cherokee and we have the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina really resulted in, um, at a certain point in time, a lot of tribes were smaller and a lot of natives were just displaced. And so 
in eastern North Carolina, folks got together to form a corporation of tribes or a tribe called the Lumbee tribe, which were descendants and folks who were affiliated with all of those previous communities. And this is very common, like in, even on the West Coast, sometimes small tribes come together to form a bigger tribe just for the purposes of survival, honestly, and for sort of economies of scale might be kind of one way to think about it. So the Lumbee tribe itself in its current iteration is a tribe that came together from all of those um, original coastal tribes like the Sheral Indians, for example, and named ourselves Lumbee after the Lumber River that runs through North Carolina. And our tribe has been operating under its its current government kind of structure for, I think, about 70 years, if I'm recalling correctly. And in 1950, the Lumbee tribe achieved getting federal recognition However, without the benefits that accompany that. And so currently we are a state recognized tribe with all of those benefits and are still have been advocating for decades with the federal government to have full recognition and full benefits that come with that. And in short, I'll say that doesn't mean uh, those benefits are anything to be like super excited about, but it's actually more about the acknowledgement of us as a people and a people with it with a certain history. And an important piece in the journey to today for Edgar Villanueva is when you, Edgar, got your job with the Reynolds Charitable Trust. I can feel the excitement and the adventure as you're going into it, as you write in Decolonizing Wealth. I can feel the excitement. And I tell you, my heart breaks as your story goes on and you end up being forced to leave that organization. Could you recapitulate a little bit of it? I really think people should buy Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. I think people need to get the full story, but people need to hear a little bit about how you got to the point where you're giving $25 million away to the people who you need to nurture. You're, you're theoretically promised you got free hand, go and do it. And you say, hooray, right? Yeah. So, you know, the world of philanthropy, institutional philanthropy, where I've been working now for 20 years, it's the ivory tower. There's a lot of privilege, a lot of resources. We're talking about $1 trillion is sort of what these foundations represent, how much we hold in capital. And um, coming into an organization 20 years ago as a young person coming from a background that did not have power or wealth or privilege was really, really a, sort of an exciting experience for me because I all of a sudden had a lot of respect and I got invited to the cool parties and had access to the powers that be because I held a key to this treasure box, this trust that was created by Mrs. Reynolds with the mandate of supporting low-income individuals across North Carolina to improve their health care. And it was at a certain point in time being in that role where I began to realize that things weren't quite as they seemed in terms of the true sort of intent and, and generosity of the foundation was, you know, was the money was absolutely doing great things in community, but the upkeep of the legacy of this family and sort of the maintaining of power and control and a commitment to the status quo was like really also important. I remember, you know, being younger and really excited and ambitious, wanting to deliver on what I read as the mission of the foundation, beginning to receive some pushback 
And early on, one of the things that I experienced there was a lack of willingness to really move money to new groups that were led by people of color who may have been smaller. You know, uh, when I read the poorest people in North Carolina in the mission, I, I was going to those counties in eastern North Carolina many of them 80, 90% Black who had like often no access to a doctor or our healthcare system nearby and was really wanting to support emerging efforts that I saw there um, to improve the health of communities. I began to experience very coded kind of language that I now understand to be kind of racist in some ways, right? Like all those folks don't have a track record. That's a very risky investment. And let's just wait and see. But, you know, at the end of the day, there was a large contingent of well-funded organizations and hospitals who we're accustomed to getting that money. And those folks had a strong lobby on our board. And so trying to divert money from them to other people became a point of contention. And so there's a lot of reconciling, I should say, that I was trying to do in that moment to make sense of the mission and the work I was trying to do. And also being a person who was hired in this institution because of my relationships to those communities and because of my identity, but yet being sort of feeling like once I was hired that I was really a token when I was expected to kind of leave that at the door to assimilate, to be a part of the good old boys club there, you know, and it was really a lot to hold. And I began to feel really oppressed. And I wasn't a radical person coming into the boardroom with my fist in the air or anything like that, you know, but I just really mad, amazing people in the community that I thought were worthy of funding. And there wasn't a willingness to consider groups and communities that were outside of the very high standards that we had set there for funding. So yeah, it was painful. And eventually my questions or my interrogation, respectful interrogation of that system began to make people uncomfortable. And ultimately, you know, I felt the pressure to move on. Would you be willing to say a few words about, it's really about the complexity of these situations, because we're talking about oppressed people, people who have been suffering from white supremacy, communities of color of all sorts, And the person who got you in kind of groomed you to be the powerhouse of healing that you were doing your work for Reynolds Charitable Trust, I understand was African-American. And so, you know, she's got you in there. She's encouraging you. And then she ended up being part of the problem. And so you talk a bit about internalized oppression and you talk about being co-opted by a system, how you, how we get colonized by the colonizer virus. Could you explain that situation, what you learned from essentially being forced out by the person who got you in? Yeah, it was really painful because I had so much respect for the person who hired me, who was the first person of color to lead that foundation and the first woman. And so I felt really, really, you know, an amazing sense of pride in um, working for her. And I was her first hire. And so I considered myself to be sort of an agent of change behind a lot of the things that she was wanting to change. And together, we were able to really push that organization forward to do so many great things together. But at a certain point in time, I think I began to get a lot of shine in the field. I was seen as a rising star. In fact, I won some kind of award that labeled me as like the next rising star of philanthropy or something. And From that moment on, I began to sort of feel like I had a a target on my back because there wasn't a lot of room for other people to shine in the organization. 
I say to young people sometimes when they ask me for career advice, I'm like, be careful to don't outshine your boss because then you're getting into like a, a dangerous place there. But, you know, I have so much love for this person because I can't imagine what she has experienced or what she's gone through to get to the place in her career and to be the first woman of color in such a high powered role. You know, at the time, I probably was a little naive about what she might have been experiencing. But the bigger picture that I bring out in the story is that white supremacy is really a two-legged stool. And we all experience white supremacy, including white people, in ways that we might propagate white supremacy in ways we might internalize it. There's white supremacy that white folks, because of fair skin, benefit from this propaganda in some ways, have privilege around the systems and can choose to be a part of dismantling those systems or choose to kind of benefit from that privilege in some ways. And we also know there are folks who really want to fight to maintain that privilege, right? Like this straight up kind of folks that come to mind sometimes like the KKK or whatever, when you hear about white supremacy. But in communities of color, we are not immune from internalizing, you know, some of those oppressive dynamics as well. Just because I happen to be Native American or someone else happens to be a person of color does not mean, you know, we are born into the same kind of systems and and we read the same things and we see the same things on television. So we as people of color must also do the work to not internalize ideas of white supremacy and not to be a part of the problem of propagating white supremacy. So that two-legged stool is like oppression and there's internalized oppression. And the internalized oppression can come about for people of color by wanting to have more proximity to power and so sort of choosing to go along with the status quo and to be a part of, of maintaining that because it's benefiting us versus being a part of dismantling that. You know, there's a lot that you might risk as a person of color in choosing to be a part of dismantling a system that where maybe you have found some comfort and some benefit. And so, you know, I totally felt really, really deeply harmed and and saddened by a situation where I felt like another person of color did not see the world in the same way. And at the time, I was too young to fully understand or appreciate whatever experience or struggle they may be going through. So all of us, whether you're a person of color or whether you're white, must do the work of healing to really heal from internalizing all the things that are out there kind of pushing us in a direction around maintaining the system. And so, you know, even for those of us who have been harmed by white supremacy, we can absolutely be a part of the problem if we don't do our own healing. There's one more piece, Edgar, that I feel it's really important to bring in. So for people to understand kind of the background of what got you to decolonizing wealth, and that is the first great philanthropist of your life. That's your mother. You tell some really evocative stories about her, about you know while she's working her two or three jobs and you traveling with her and the way that she still, beyond her paid work, was giving back to the community constantly. Could you say a few words about her? What's her name? Um, my mom's name is Sheila. And I often refer to her as the first philanthropist that I knew. You know, we did not have a lot of money very little money. But my mom really embodied the spirit of generosity. And I saw a lot of that work model through her leadership in our church and being really involved in community outreach and just different caretaking programs and 
especially for young people. My mom had a really soft heart for children and um, ran a ministry out of our church to support kids. So I just kind of grew up seeing this person that was so involved in, in those types of community efforts. And, you know, I think back now, like part of it might have been like escaping our own problems by focusing on folks who are less fortunate, but it, it worked because although I know that we had struggles, we were always reminded that there were folks who were worse off and we were doing what we could to support those folks. And that spirit of generosity was just something I inherited from my mom. And I've learned that you don't have to be a Bill Gates or a billionaire or a millionaire to be a philanthropist. The real philanthropists in this country are folks who are poor folks and working class folks who, according to data, we actually give away a higher percentage of our income, but we also embody a way of taking care of each other and supporting one another that we don't often see sometimes from those folks who get the spotlight for being philanthropists. The other piece that kind of will set the tone from three years ago when I first talked to you to today is the events like George Floyd's death and a lot of other movements in between are what fill in the new addition of decolonizing wealth, indigenous wisdom to heal divides and restore balance. What events in the past three years have been particularly formative for you? You know, I will say I have been deeply impacted like the rest of the country by the pandemic and, of course, by the racial justice uprisings that really came to light after George Floyd's murder. These were not new issues in my community by any means, but what I experienced this time around that was different is that there was much more of a multiracial outpour of support and really um, folks who got behind and began to understand the changes that we must see in our communities in order to see racial healing and to close these disparities. You know, when Ferguson happened about five years ago or so, we didn't see the same type of support for the movement for Black Lives. It was largely Black folks marching and fighting. And in fact, some labeled the movement for Black Lives as a terrorist group. And we absolutely didn't see corporations coming out with statements and backing. And so I, I really am excited to see that the world has changed in that regard and that we're all beginning to come together to take a stand for racial equality. I think the pandemic really helped me experience or, or witness, I should say, a vast collective grieving. Like it just hit us all. Like there was so much death around us. And I lived at that time in New York City next to a hospital where on some days in the height of the pandemic, 700 and 800 people were passing away. They were carrying bodies out and putting them in 18 wheelers as makeshift morgues. And to see that level of death happening and to see the disparities of who was being the most impacted was just something that highlighted the systemic and historical issues that have been in place that led to those types of disparities. So I hope that we've all just gotten to a place to better understand our common humanity. I felt extremely human in 2020. I felt the vulnerabilities and the fragility of being a human being. And I think a lot of folks did. And it's helped me to see my neighbor through a, a different lens. And I hope that in some small way or a great way, we can sustain that type of connection. It's a very indigenous worldview to like actually have empathy and sympathy and to see each other as relatives. 
And that when systems break down, it, eventually we're all going to suffer. And those at the margins will suffer the most and suffer sooner. But eventually when these systems begin to collapse, we will all suffer. If we don't take care of this planet, we will all suffer. And to imagine that any of us are immune from that is, is really idealistic. There's no amount of wealth or anything that can protect us. And so that's changed me. I've become even more of an advocate for truth and reconciliation and healing and coming together across class, across race. So to really figure out how to restore balance to the world and to really deepen our sense of connection to one another. You know, you said that, Gary, just what you just said included the phrase that we're all relatives. And one of the things that you can share in the book is the phrase, all my relations, which you said, I didn't realize that it actually came from the Native Americans in my area. I thought this was probably just translated in all of the dialects of all tribes across the United States. Of course, being Lumbee and, and not having your own language, you wouldn't have it necessarily internally there. But how widespread is the idea of all my relations, which, by the way, has been for me for for decades has been one of the inspirational concepts. It's very widespread. You know, we have in the U.S. 540 plus tribes. So they're absolutely unique characteristics. We're not a monolithic group. But I would say that this idea of all my relations is something that is pretty universal in terms of how we navigate the world and and really from a place of relationship versus transactional. You know, we deeply believe that we are all related to each other and to the planet. And there's a sense of responsibility that we hold. And, you know, and sometimes when you're related to people, it doesn't mean that you love them all the time. (laughs) You may not agree on every aspect of life. But there's still some conscious understanding that you are in this thing called life together and you you strive to find a way to accept and to love. And so that is really a universal kind of principle that I think is shared across most indigenous communities. Folks, you are tuned in to Spirit in Action. Our website, Northern Spirit radio.org. You've got all of our guests and their links and the radio stations, all of that on northernspiritradio.org. So you can find a link to Edgar Villanueva. His website that you should head to is decolonizingwealth.com. Just this past August, he released his second edition of Decolonizing Wealth of this book. It's a wonderful addition to the earlier book. I did interview you, Edgar, what? three years ago about that book, and I was amazed at the greater depth and breadth and further examples that are included in this edition. So, folks, it's well worth getting hold of, and you're going to learn a lot about philanthropy and about how the world ticks, and you're going to learn insights, folks, about how the world could tick differently that you maybe hadn't even considered as alternatives. So please remember to get a hold of that book. Also on our site, please remember to post comments on this interview and our other programs. We have a donate button, so that's how you can support us. We exist by the grace of your support as well, not by corporations and not by government. That's not where we get our money from. This full-time work is supported by you, our listeners. So help us out and especially help our the local community radio stations, kind of folks who carry this program all around you. And we're not saying public radio. This is local community radio stations, the music that's entirely funded, supported by folks in all these wonderful local communities across the nation. Please support them first. 
Again, Edgar Villanueva is here. Well, let's say a thing or two about your name, because Villanueva is a Spanish, Hispanic name. People might assume that's what you're like. You've also got a beard, which is, <laughs> if you're Native American, aren't you supposed to be beardless? And I, so tell yeah. me about tell me about who you are, your name. Yes. The hair thing is really a funny question because I, I feel like I heard that when I was young and there are definitely folks that I see who look like a little smooth skin, but I, I definitely see hairy Native American folks all over the place. So I don't know where that one comes from. But, you know, my name actually comes from my stepfather who adopted me. So he's Filipino. A lot of Filipinos have the names of the Spanish folks who colonized the Philippines. So it's so funny, as much work as I do around decolonization, I've actually carried around the name of a a colonizer who colonized the Philippines. My first name, um, Edgar, I just learned this. I was talking with some folks in Hawaii last week who deeply find uh, spiritual meaning in names. Edgar actually means finance or wealth spear. So like a, oh, really? so my, my name, finance or wealth, and I'm a spear. And then my last name translated into English is new village. So they were basically saying my name actually translates to the new house of abundance, the new house of wealth, the new house. I think that's really beautiful that my name actually sort of embodies in a lot of ways. What I'm trying to do is to present a new way or a new space, a new house for us all to think about wealth and abundance in a different way. Well, that's rich to hear that. That's great. I was actually going to suggest to you that, like myself, I mean, I didn't grow up as Mark Helps Meet. I grew up as Mark Judkins. And when my wife and I got married, we said, who are we together? And so he chose a new name. And in so many Native American communities, there is a point where you get to choose a name or a name gets given to you by elders. And so that makes a difference. Of course, you've got your own experience with that, right? Tell people about that, please. Yeah, you know, I think names are important. And I had an opportunity as well to receive an Indian name. (laughs) I always sort of was envious of my friends who had those really beautiful Native American names. And I was in your part of the country, actually, Mark, years ago and met with an indigenous uh, medicine man who was a Jibbawe who gifted me with a native name, which is Nagani Benashe, which means leading bird. And so that's also a name that I strive to embody and, and to live towards is to be a leader, but to, to lead in a way like the birds who fly in the V formation, right? Flying and moving through the world in a coordinated way that's bringing others with me. And I will circle around back and push other leaders to the front. I don't always have to be the one taking the brunt of that force. So there's just so much to explore from nature and from names, but I'm really digging these interpretations of of names and these gifts of names that have been given to me as a reflection of my calling. You know, I feel inadequate in interviewing you, Edgar, in that there's so much of understanding about philanthropy, about money, about wealth, finance, that's part of this book. And it's not that so much that people are going to go away being an economics major, because that is actually probably being colonized if you do that. But for instance, you mentioned what the word altruism means versus the more native concept of reciprocity. Could you say a few words about that? Sure. You know, altruistic is sort of this mindset. On the surface, it's not a bad word, right? It's like kindness, generosity, but it's steeped in this mindset that a lot of charitable ideas are steeped in. And that's sort of like 
I'm going to help these poor people over here that I am not in relationship with and I may not know. In much of the charitable work that happens in the world, you know, I've been guilty of this. I've gone to galas and ate the fancy food or whatever, and it's raising money for, you know, some calls that I may not even feel connected to or people that I absolutely don't know. Again, there's nothing like on the surface wrong with that. But the real way that we need to move forward is not based in altruism, but it is based in reciprocity. And it gets back to this idea of all my relations. In Native communities, we give to help those in need because we know in our time of need, those folks would help us. So it's a gift that is given in perpetuity and gifts keep moving forward and the energy keeps kind of moving versus a gift that's given out of relationship and disconnection, you know, and there's often ulterior motives behind those types of gifts. So it's actually getting to the point of understanding that we are all related. All of our suffering is mutual. All of our thriving is mutual. And we give with the intention of knowing that we are supporting our own family, our own relatives who we know will take care of us in our time of need. And so it's just a different orientation to giving that's not based out of uh, sometimes of an elitist, white savior kind of point of view. Another concept that you discuss in the book, and again, this is going along with very concrete examples of how philanthropy, of how mutual nurture, about how you get past tokenism representation in organizations, that's all woven into the book, Decolonizing Wealth. You talk about medicine. Wealth as medicine is perhaps the medicine that you're raised or that you've grown into, I'd say, telling stories as medicine. And again, this is a native concept, which is less obvious from the Eurocentric point of view. Tell us more about medicine. Yeah, you know, medicine in the indigenous worldview is really anything that your intuition or your heart allows to be medicine in a lot of ways. It's that thing that helps bring balance to you as a person or to to make you feel whole or well. And so that could be, you know, maybe meditation could be a form of medicine for some folks. Maybe after a difficult day, you have a friend that you like to call who makes you laugh on the phone or whatever. And maybe that phone call is a type of medicine. And so it's it's really thinking about what do you want and need and what is your contribution to healing in the world? And so whatever sector you work in, for you, Mark, having this program where you're lifting up the voices of folks or having important conversations as a form of medicine, maybe in a, a different sector, and you know, folks in the entertainment industry, for example, where I've worked, they're telling stories and helping to push back on harmful ideas and lift up voices and diversity and all those types of things in their medium. All of us have the power to find our medicine and to use our medicine to help the world be a better place and to kind of move forward and to heal. And so that's really all medicine is. It's just something that that's sacred and it's about finding your calling. And we all have a gift. We all have a calling and we need to be open to the universe or to God or to like whatever intuition you may have to help you discover that. And when you find it, hold on to it and, and like really put it to work because we are all called to do something. For me, I, I it's kind of weird, but I was, I'm called to, to move money, <laughs> which it took me a while to kind of understand that. But once I accepted that, that this sometimes is an icky place to be, but it's not about the money I've learned. It's, it's about 
actually helping to move that energy. And, you know, we all have trauma connected to money in some different kind of way, whether you had it or you don't have it, but moving that energy around and supporting people on both sides of that divide has been my calling. So it's been amazing since I accepted that. And clearly the doors have been opening for me to do that work and in a really major way. That's what medicine is really all about. And what I think Edgar Villanueva is all about is really about healing. That's the core piece of it. Because there's ideas that feel threatening, scary, contentious to some people, to many people, actually, things like reparations. I think some people must freeze up and their stomach drops out and it's like, no, door goes closed. I heard the word reparations. You have a wonderful passage that you got from Hillary, who's part of the Geo Family Foundation. You can explain out who she is. I'd like you to read that from page 153 because the both open-hearted and vulnerable and incisive way that Hillary conveys was a way for me to step forward past some of my white fragility, some of my white supremacy. Could you share that, Edgar? Yeah, I would love to. Hillary is a a white lady who comes from wealth that I met some years ago at, uh, at a conference. We were both speaking on a panel together. I honestly, at first, was probably held a little biased because this was a Native American-focused conference. And I thought like, oh, it's very interesting that this white lady is here speaking on a panel. What does she know about Native Americans? You know, Just being transparent, we think there's things sometimes, right? We judge people by the cover. And I later, after I heard her speak, began to really have respect for her and her experience. And she's someone who's really done her work to grapple with her whiteness and her history and her privilege. One of the things that Hillary did was actually do some research to understand where she came from. And this is a a major part of ancestral healing that we all must do. Like, who are your people? Where do you come from? There's a history. We're all American, but we are all all other things. Like we all came from somewhere and, and that identity is important. So for Hillary and kind of exploring those ideas, she realized and and learned that her family had owned slaves in North Carolina, which is where I'm from, and had benefited from land grants, land that was taken away from indigenous folks. And of course, this was deeply shameful and sad for her to discover. So she began to go on a, a healing journey around that. And one of the things that she felt called to do was to write letters of apology, to take ownership for those actions from her ancestors and in a sense to find her own healing from this and her own liberation. And so she wrote me a letter, which I found to be really interesting because I didn't know her very well at the time. She sent me an email and said, Hey, you're going to get this letter. It might be kind of strange. There's no need for you to respond to it. It's just something that I feel led to do. You can trash it or do with it, whatever you want. So when I got the letter, I was like, what is she writing to me? This is going to be interesting. I was floored by how beautiful the letter was. And for the first time in my life, I felt seen. I felt like someone understood my family and where I came from and was taking some ownership for those realities versus just kind of blaming us and saying, you know, you should work harder and those kinds of things. So happy to read this short excerpt from the letter of apology. She wrote to my indigenous relatives and relatives of color. I apologize for my ignorance of the harm that came to you in the horrors you survived through many generations. I apologize for my unconscious racism and white supremacy and the pain they have caused you. 
I apologize for the silent ways I gave my own comfort priority over your existence as a sovereign human being. When I dishonored you, I dishonored my own humanity and the humanity of all of our children. I am sorry. I love you. Please forgive me. And then Hillary just went on to not only apologize to Black folks and Native folks, she also apologized to white folks. And she wrote an excerpt that says, I apologize for all the ways I have judged you instead of allowing myself to feel the grief of our collective spiritual amnesia and impoverishment. I apologize for seeing you as a monster of oppression instead of a child of creation. I apologize for disassociating from you and denying that we are related. When I judged you, I judged my own ancestors, my children, and myself. I am sorry. I love you. Please forgive me. That is so powerful. And you go on in the book, Edgar, to talk about the steps of healing that we have to go through. I don't want you to spell it out. I want people to get a copy of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. But mention about those steps and maybe where you see yourself or others, where the nation is, what your overview is. And then people can fill in the blanks by reading the book. Yeah, you know, essentially the first part of this conversation and the book is a lot around what's broken in the world and how we're hurting because of the history. And the second part is about healing. There are seven steps of healing that are grounded in indigenous wisdom that come from ideas of restorative justice that is not pointing blame. It's kind of basically saying it is what it is. How do we get together and and heal from this? And it starts with acknowledging the facts of what has happened, naming that and grieving and apologizing in the same way that Hillary did, and then moving into relationship together, which for folks from pretty much every type of faith practice in the world, this is not too dissimilar from the idea of acknowledging wrong and, and, and getting on a path of repairing and making commitments to not do any further harm. And so I bring in the context of money as well into that healing process because money money is just a proxy and it's a symbol. How we use our money can be a form of medicine as well and repair and reparations. Part of your path since you started working with the Reynolds Charitable Trust and moved on to other things has been to see how money can be healing or hurtful. Part of what you talk about in the book, and this is part of the veils being lifted from my eyes. I mean, I've thought often about money not being invested in things that are hurtful. So you talk specifically, Edgar, in the book about, okay, let's not have our charitable funds put in places where it's going to cause the harm that we're theoretically trying to alleviate. But then you go on and you talk about Well, let's put it so that the money that's invested that way is actually doing the good that we want. It's not only the funds that we give away, it's the money we have invested. Say a little bit about that picture. And again, folks, read Decolonizing Wealth and you'll understand a lot more. No, I appreciate that, Mark, because, you know, as we were saying, you don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire to think about how you're using the money that you do have that can really be a part of a solution, a part of repairing or even justice. And so we can look at our retirement funds and how they're invested. Are we investing in harmful and extractive industries? Many of us don't even know. Like you have to push to find out and ask questions from fund managers. If you have values around not supporting private prisons and those types of things, you can you can definitely advocate to not have your personal finances wrapped up in those types of industries. 
where we decide to bank matters, who you do business with matters. When it comes time for in your business, if you're choosing vendors or partner, even where we eat to like make a decision to try to support black owned businesses and restaurants, uh, you know, those dollars matter. The power of the dollar and where you choose to put it can really matter. And where you're making your contributions, whether you're giving just a little or giving a lot, looking at the list as we approach the end of the year of where you want to provide some charitable support, are you also adding to your list organizations that are led by Black and Native folks and working in those communities? Because often those nonprofit and charitable organizations are overlooked and don't receive a lot of support. So those are just really small ways that we can all be a little more conscious around how we're using our resources. And would you say a few words about liberated capital? Because that was a really exciting thing to see what you've been doing with that. Sure. Liberated Capital was a fund that we established about a year and a half ago at my nonprofit called Decolonizing Wealth Project. And the idea is that we move untethered resources to these nonprofits we were just talking about. They're led by Indigenous and and Black folks working in those communities. And um, we give them resources. We redistribute wealth to those organizations in a way that does no harm, that trusts them, that does not force them into a theory of change or make them do a lot of labor for those dollars. We just see that they're doing that work and we redistribute those funds to support them. And in that, we have a community of more than 350 donors that come together. We pool our resources. Anyone's welcome to be a part of that community. You can learn about it at our website. It's multiracial, multi-class. Some people give $5 a month. Some people are giving $5,000 a month. And over the last year, we were able to raise millions of dollars. And it just goes to show when you have a lot of people looking to do good and, and get unified behind that purpose, We've been able to do some really fantastic work. We're supporting campaigns for liberation. And you may have heard about Bruce's Beach in California, some land that is getting returned back to the original Black owners. Those are some of the types of racial and economic justice projects we've been able to support. And it's just been super powerful to see folks give with that heart of reparative giving and reparations and to see the increased amount of resources that are being able to go to groups who have been at the margins of philanthropy for a long, long time. If I had enough time, which we really don't, we're coming near the end of the time for this broadcast version of Spirit in Action. If I had enough time, I would take you to deeper places of wrestling that I've tried to do. Just this past week, I got a call, because I answer a phone for the Quaker meeting, I got a call from someone who needed some money. Each time that I've been pressed for charity, when I lived in Africa, seeing people who are really needy ask me for money, and I feel terribly conflicted about charity. The guy who asked me for money this past week, and I gave him some, I had to make a decision because I think he was a scam. I think he was telling me a story that was supposed to pull my heartstrings. And I did some checking and I got some indications that, yeah, it was a scam. But I decided that the lesser harm I would do would be by giving up my money versus him perhaps having to suffer from his lack of that money. So I decided even though there is a significant percentage possibility that this was just some scam, does that kind of thing hit you? I mean, where have you been able to, I mean, it's certainly not every organization that comes looking for funding is going to be really part of healing. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's great. No, you know, it's complicated. I mean, one is that 
just zooming out way out for a moment, you know, the fact that we have sort of this philanthropic industry is actually in itself a system built off of inequality in the first place where we don't have philanthropy like this in other countries, like at, at this type of scale where we have $1 trillion in, in foundation assets. You know, so one thing that's really important to remember is that philanthropy should not be replacing the role of government and really providing safety net services to folks. And so that's one mechanism where we can all contribute to support all of these folks who are in need is to actually push on the government to make wealthy people pay taxes that could go into a system to support. We need more progressive policies and safety net services for people living in poverty in this country. At the same time, kind of in your scenario, Mark, with the situation you encountered, it's really challenging because, you know, we have so many narratives about people living in poverty that make it complicated and poverty causes people to do things sometimes, you know, because of out of desperation or out of survival that may seem to be like they're playing games or being dishonest. And, you know, and even not, I'm not justifying crime by any sense, but you know, crime is often is being committed by people who are living in poverty who find themselves in, in, with no other option. My approach is if I see a person on the street, and I live in New York City, so I see many folks on the street asking for money. When my heart speaks to me to give it, I give it. And then if I, there are many times that I don't, and I can't discern whether or not the person is being genuine or, or worthy. It's just more of giving where my heart tells me to. And I also sort of put all of these folks in the same category of folks who have in some ways fallen into some type of unfortunate situation because of systems and a history. I try not to sort of demonize um, poor people in the way that a lot of folks have. We've experienced that in programs where we give direct cash through my organization. And I've had donors to say, well, how do you know they're not going to spend it on on alcohol or whatever? Right. And part of my pushback on that is, well, maybe they will, but you know, it, it's not my, up to me to tell them how to live their lives or how to use money. If the spirit moves me to give the money, then it's really on them in terms of how they spend it. But what we actually have found in evaluation is that 0% of the people spent the money on drugs or alcohol. In general, people living in poverty want to take care of their families and they have real pressing needs and they actually have the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of how to do that if they have the resources. Yeah. There's one more observation and this might come off as white fragility. I look at myself to see if that's what's happening. I am white and even more so as I've gotten old and my beard has turned white. <laughs> I used to have brown red beard, you know, and used to have something redeeming, but now it's can't say I'm anything but white is that in this country in the USA, white supremacy and the colonization has been devastating to the people here, to the people who are dragged here from Africa. And so we have to deal with white supremacy, no question. My concern is that white supremacy in this country is simply a manifestation of a, very, a universal human tendency. That is to say, I've spent time in Rwanda and the Hutu and Tutsis killed each other. And sure, they were manipulated and set up against each other by the colonial forces. But that happened there. And in West Africa, where I lived for two years, the tribes opposed the Kabye, opposed the Eve, opposed the Kodokoli. 
And so what I would say is that what has manifested here very so painfully as white supremacy is a completely human tendency that if we just solve the white supremacy problem, we may go on to the black supremacy or the Jewish supremacy or the, you know, the Catholic supremacy problem. The face of oppression changes. Japan's uh, oppression of Korea, for instance, is an example. So how does that figure into your view? I mean, we have the immediate problem, which we have to deal with. I don't want to take away from any of the work that we need to do here. But the end point, which is healing, which is for you and me and everyone should be the final point, I don't think it gets solved if we only think that the problem is whiteness. I love this point, Mark, because even in, in the U.S. context, the definition of whiteness has, has shifted to accommodate those in power. At one point in time in, in the U.S., Italians were not considered white. Irish folks were not considered white. And so who was considered white by the definition really has changed depending on who was making that call. You know, what I take away from that is there are folks in power who use race and the race is a construct. It's not a real thing. It was made up, but it's real in the sense that we have real policies and decisions that are made as a result of it. But I think the call is for us all to join together in this movement for healing because we don't know who may be next to be pushed to the bottom, right? And so this climb to the top and to be in power and to be a part of the dominating class is not self-serving when we all can actually step back from that and come together to share power and share resources. Because yeah, it's it's a moving target in some ways. And I think globally, as you explained, we've seen that happen. My group could get to the top. And if we haven't done that healing work, then we will repeat those dominating oppressive types of behaviors. So you're right. It is it's about healing for all of us. And globally, the folks in power have seen and tried to model white supremacy, even if they're not white, right? So other countries who are oppressing, there's still these sort of like dominating forces or these ideas of dominating and oppressing folks that we continue to repeat these cycles. And I'm capable of it as an indigenous person if I don't do the healing work in my own life so that I don't continue these cycles of abuse and violence. Somehow, Edgar, I think you couldn't go there. I think your spirit <laughs> is is so firmly directed towards healing and seeing the big picture that I, I guess I would trust you to not go there. <laughs> Folks, we've been speaking with Edgar Villanueva. He is the author that we just got the second edition released of his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to heal divides and restore balance. The website you want to go to is decolonizingwealth.com. As I told you three years ago, when I first spoke with you, Edgar, your book is inspirational for me. You're inspirational for me. I am so happy to share this earth with you and to see the healing work you're doing. Thank you for so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you so much. Decolonizingwealth.com is his website. Ours is northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. 